Hello and welcome back to Playability, where we hold conversations at the crossroads of gameplay and accessibility. I'm your host, Lauren Woolsey, and I'm here today with Aaron Andrew Wilson, the game designer of Sovereign Skies, which we'll talk about today, and for disclosure, the artist behind our amazing Playability logo. What's this game's backstory? Sovereign Skies all started basically when I started designing games, which was a few years ago now. Actually, my game design, I would say I actually started doing game design a really long time ago because I was doing RPG design when I was very young, back in the 80s, when I was a high school kid. But I was kind of doing that stuff more as a hobby, and now I've kind of taken it on more seriously because... I found that I just really, really enjoy doing it. So I started just taking myself more seriously when it comes to design. And I decided one day, basically, that I wanted to design a game again, but this time it was going to be a board game. And I really started out uh, doing Sovereign Skies as a card game. It was not called Sovereign Skies at the time. It was called Sky Rain. And I was sort of getting into just trying to figure out what kind of game I wanted to make. So I had this idea for a sci-fi kind of theme. Um, and the idea came from sort of this approach where all the players were the bad guys. Uh, <laughs> so really, it was kind of a commentary, a social commentary in a way. I wanted everyone to kind of realize what you're doing is coming in and you're kind of corrupt and your your influence and control that you're putting upon this sort of world is really all about exploitation. Um, so the, the different factions are kind of squabbling with one another, but they're really after the same goal, which is exploiting either planets or some sort of, uh, some sort of culture and worlds. So that's kind of where this came about. As I developed this game, uh, the original game, which was Skyrain, I realized there were some things that I didn't understand and I, didn't, I wanted to do better. So I began kind of doing variations. Eventually, I got to a point where I created a game called New Rain, and it was a very different game from my original card game. Um, and this game is, is one that I ended up taking to Unpub, and I started to shop around. And it was called New Rain, well, because it was so different from the original, but also because it was a new reign of kind of a government that was happening where we were coming in and they were trying to become this democracy and we were exploiting this democracy. So Sovereign Skies really came from the fact that New Rain just wasn't a very good name. <laughs> and, so, and so the development of, of New Rain into Sovereign Skies was about refining the system that was, was New Rain, but also refining a lot of aspects of, of what this game was. And um, yeah, it's, it's a long time coming, uh, honestly. I, I'm really, really excited about where this game is now, finally. I feel like the base game is there, and yeah, I'm excited to get it out into the world. That's excellent. Yeah, I, that, that step you mentioned of just having confidence in yourself that, yeah, I can actually design a game, that's, that's one that a lot of people don't take yeah, that definitely. probably could, so that's always exciting. The version that you brought to Unpub, was that a board game at that point or still a card game? that eventually got developed into something bigger? Well, actually, it's funny you ask, because the first time I went to Unpub, I just went for a day because I happened to have my wife's family had an event going on down in the area. It was really down in Maryland, but near, uh, very close to, to Baltimore. Baltimore is in Maryland, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but there were a few cities away, and I decided to kind of take this day trip and go over to Unpub to, 
to check it out. And I did have my card game version with me at the time. It wasn't yet. It was still Skyrim. And I was able to, to just get a couple of plays in with some people there and people I, I didn't know anyone at the time. Um, this was quite a few years ago. And then the next year, I actually returned and I knew some people because of Twitter. And I had New Rain at the time and was able to test that and really get amazing feedback. And I was, I was able to pitch it actually to a couple of publishers at the time. And I did actually get an offer for New Rain at that Unpub or right after that Unpub. However, I didn't feel like it was ready, um, so which which is a, kind of a weird thing, but it, it it's maybe a little egocentric. But I I really felt like I wanted it to be with a publisher that I knew and with and to be in the shape that I wanted it to be in. I was in no rush to get it into the hands of someone that I didn't necessarily feel like could could bring it to the next level. So. I kept a hold of it and I actually didn't end up pitching in it again until almost a year, maybe a year later. And then eventually the following Unpub was after it was signed, which was last Unpub, which was fantastic. And it was actually being run by, by Deepwater at that point. Uh, Ian Zhang was running the, the playtest for it at the time because we were still doing a lot of playtests in, in development at, at that point. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Unpub is such a phenomenal experience and the the major one in Baltimore because I know that there are smaller events but the major one in Baltimore is just unparalleled in the wide range of feedback you can get I know that there are other conventions like protospiel where you can get really targeted feedback but just to get a really wide range of playtesters including people who are just there because it sounded interesting and not necessarily fellow game designers yeah absolutely yeah, that can be really, really helpful. Yeah, and I think I think even the Unpub minis are, are really helpful. I did end up taking Uranium to a couple of Unpub minis um, down in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where I got great feedback for it, and I was able to take it to another level at that point. And actually, I just remembered I actually did do a playtest at Metatopia, which was a a, a little Northeast conference where it is all playtests. It's really actually great. They do a room at Gen Con as well. The same, the same people do have this uh, kind of a playtest room there at Gen Con, and uh, I never kind of made it into that realm. I never took it into Gen Con, but I did go to Metatopia one of the first years. Well, that I found out about at least it was quite a few years ago now. But yeah, it was a really great experience, and, and I was able to get a lot of playtests. And so I think it's really important that designers take their games to conferences, to game cons, and get as many yeah. playtests in as they can. Get as many different perspectives as they can, and and get that wide range of feedback that can yeah absolutely can have you look at the game from a different point of view yeah absolutely having that kind of wide swath of people and types of people play your game is really important like i now go to nyc playtest group it's gil hoven and, and dan newman so i get to see those guys all the time you know the thing is we end up playing each other's games a lot and there's a you know a pretty good amount of people that go to these but at the same time you're getting kind of the same types of people and you're getting a lot of designers which is always great but you really want to get that public too the the, the gamers yeah, that once you're once it. you're trying to refine something yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely it's very important so so we've heard about your development path what are the primary mechanics that the game uses well it's a rondelle so one of the cool things about it is that you're basically you're always moving one space around the rondelle, either clockwise or counterclockwise, and then you're spending energy, which is the game's currency, to move more spaces. So 
you potentially can come around to nearly the same spot. You're not actually allowed to play the same action two turns in a row from the same, or at least the same planet. Each planet has a unique action. But you can also spend two energy to turn around, basically fly around the planet that you're on uh, and, and go the in the opposite direction. So then you'll just pick up on your following turns going in the counterclockwise motion. You can always just pay to turn around again. And it's a really cool kind of dynamic thing. So you're planning out kind of where you want to go and w- according to what you want to achieve. It's a lot of fun. There are a couple of games, I think, that do something similar, um, but I can't name them off the top of my head right now. But it's fairly unique. It's just really, really useful in this type of game in the situation that's created by the by the theme and, and by, yeah, the, the mechanics that it requires. So it's always nice to combine the mechanics and the theme together in a seamless way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you're moving around this rondelle, basically you're, you have a, this mothership and you're sort of orbiting this system. And as you go, wherever you stop, you can do one of three actions. You can drop off a ship. So basically I'd put a drop ship onto the planet and that will stay there. And basically those build up for area control. And you can take a politic card, which is basically like a simple resource that's sort of like intel for the planet and the culture there. And then you can do a unique action. And those unique actions, well, you do certain things like turn your ships that you have there into a base. So each of the planets have a different um, number of ships that it requires for you to turn into a base. There are twos, threes, and fours out of the six. So two of each kind. And then there's like a planet that allows you to actually score one of those bases, which we call activate. So you can activate one of those bases and you'll get the top most scorch it. So an activated base is worth more than an unactivated base, which is worth more than any amount of ships. So the majority controls is based on that level of construction that you've that you brought along. Excellent. Now I want to swing us around to one of the big focuses that we have at Playability, which is on accessibility. So what does accessibility mean to you? Well, accessibility means a couple of things. When I think of accessibility, I think of being able to get your game in front of people that aren't versed in all games. One thing that we're trying to do is make sure that this game is accessible to a certain crowd. It is for gamers, certainly, but there is an accessibility here. And then also I, I think of accessibility as how does it read? Is it good for colorblind? Is it good for people that are physically challenged in some way. So, you know, it's it's hard to hit all those marks. But, I, you know, I think that's something that we are going for. Um, and also, I do think about inclusivity when I think about accessibility as well. And that's one thing that I love about Deepwater and about Al Nolan is really approaching running this company is that he really wants to be inclusive. And that's something that we're really trying to integrate into the theme is having all these a vast amount of cultures and recognizing all these different kinds of races and cultures. And I'm talking about humans. So there, there are no aliens in this game. Specifically, they're all different types and races of humans. Even though it's like far into the future, it is not at all these different types of cultures. And they're trying to come together as one larger kind of democracy. And each one of these planets kind of have a different skew, but they're trying to come together. And, and that recognizing that and recognizing those types of people, I think is really important to bring that into a game. Yeah. Inclusivity is another important aspect of accessibility is just making people feel welcome from all walks of life, all ages, genders, races, everything. Absolutely. 
What decisions would you say you made in the game design process with accessibility in mind? So you've mentioned that Deepwater Games is keeping this in mind for the art direction, but what else did you either change or just from the get-go have in mind with this topic? Yeah, there's a level of complexity that we wanted to make sure that we were streamlining out to a degree. It was a much more complex game, I would say, a year ago. And that's just one of the things that I think you do in development anyway, is that you try to streamline the game into like what's the most fun about it. But also what that does is that helps it become more accessible for a larger audience as well. You know, the idea is that you would get this into the hands of people that don't necessarily play games all the time. And maybe there's a gamer there to teach it or whatnot. But getting this game to a point where it's not a heavy game, it's medium light. And I think there's a sweet spot in games right now that is sort of that medium light level. One of the guys that um, I see every once in a while because he lives by me, there's Steve Finn. He lives very close to me and he's a great designer. He designed Herbaceous mm-hmm. and also a Biblios. And so a lot of times his designs hits that sweet spot. And I really like appreciate his approach and also Alex Kevern. He also mm-hmm. lives up here by me. And like those guys, I, I try to game with and we play test stuff together we're all kind of designing in that same space and like I feel really honored to be amongst those guys and and honestly like having that kind of feedback to people who are kind of in that same mental space of trying to make something that is more accessible to a larger audience I think is helpful as well excellent what's your favorite part of the game if you had to sum up your favorite part in just a couple of sentences what I like about the game is the balance in the way that we've developed the scoring. Right now you can score not only off bases, but off of senators, which are sort of these cards that give you a free action. And you score off those when you have the right politic cards to kind of pay for them. One thing that we did in the development process, it was kind of an old school way to do area majority where you have a scoring round and you have to kind of analyze the board and figure out who got points based on who has majorities. What we wanted to do, and this kind of harkens back to the idea of accessibility, is kind of smooth that out so that you're not stopping halfway through the game and then doing it again at the end of the game. So instead, you have this smooth process that goes from the beginning to the end. And we developed this idea where the majorities are in action. And what you're doing is kind of playing this tug of war. So each of the planets kind of have this representational chit that are three points each. You can get rid of your politic cards for a point each, no matter what, even if you can't get those chits. But if those chits are available on the board, you just get them. If somebody else has them, you can take them from them if you have majority over them in that respective area. So that chit represents a planet. And so the majority scoring is actually dynamic. So you have to go and you have to do the pledge action. Then you have to get rid of the cards that matches those things. And then you have to have majority over the person who owns those things. So you can potentially be taking them from different players. And then you have to try to keep those on your player board by the end of the game. And Even if you don't still maintain majorities at the end of the game and you still have those, you still score those. No one's come and challenged you. So it's a really, really cool, dynamic way to approach area control. And honestly, I mean, I would say that that's my favorite part of the game right now because really still has kind of that shiny new car factor for me because that's one of the newest developments that we brought to the game. And that just happened, you know, this year, I would say back in spring 
of this year. And that, that just stood out. We kind of tried a couple of different things and getting to that point was just very, very exciting. And it's still exciting for me because the game isn't out yet. So I'm excited to hear what people think too. Yeah, it seems like it's been a long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. For our listeners who are interested in getting a copy of this game, when will it be available and how will it be available? Well, the game is probably not going to hit Kickstarter until the end of this year. And I can't definitively say because that's all up to deep water and and how overloaded they're going to be. For sure. They've seen a lot of success recently, especially with Welcome 2 being so big. So I know they've got a lot going on. They're basically giving me a tentative uh, date of Q4 of this year. Worst case scenario, Q1 of next year. So Perfect. And then uh, possibly an Origins soft launch, and then it'll definitely be on shelves by Gen Con next year. Excellent. And we'll make sure to have links in the episode description so that our listeners can find those. That's fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, This was a great conversation, and I look forward to being able to play Sovereign Skies. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. For more information about the topics that we discussed in this episode and the links that we just mentioned, we'll have those in the About This Episode section on our website at playabilitypod.com. And if our listeners have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, please email us at playabilitypod at gmail.com and find us on major social media platforms as at playabilitypod. Thanks again for listening. Play with a new perspective.